instantly wiping away part of his face. A minute later, Adnan and the two men were racing to the helicopter. It immediately lifted into the air. Adnan was not thinking about his dead companions. His thoughts had pushed on to a far greater glory that awaited him. If they succeeded, humanity would speak of it for generations to come in awed tones. Adnan al-Remi was now officially a dead man, yet he would never be more valuable. The chopper took a northerly route, on its way to western Pennsylvania, to a town called Brennan. He was running hard, bullets embedding in things all around him. He had no weapon to return fire. The woman next to him was his wife. The young girl next to her was their daughter. A bullet sliced through his wife's wrist, and he heard her scream. Then a second bullet found its target, and his wife's eyes widened. It was the split-second bulge of the pupils that signalled death. As his wife fell, he raced to his little girl's side to shield her. His fingers reached for hers, but missed. They always missed. He awoke and sat up, the sweat trickling down his cheeks before finally creeping onto his long, bushy beard. As he got up from the bed, his leg brushed against the old box he kept there. He hesitated and then lifted the top off. Inside was a ragged photo album. One by one, he looked at the few pictures of the woman who'd been his wife. Then he turned to the photos of his daughter, of the baby and toddler she'd been. He had no more pictures of her after that. He would have given his life to have seen her even for a moment as a young woman. Never a day went by that he didn't wonder what might have been. He looked around the cottage's sparsely furnished interior. Looking back at him were dusty shelves crammed with books. He checked his watch, took a pair of binoculars from the table next to his bed, and grabbed the knapsack off his desk. He stuffed the binoculars and a few journals in the knapsack and headed outside. The old grave markers loomed before him, the evening moonlight glancing off the weathered mossy stone. He walked through the large wrought-iron gates where the scrollwork announced that this was Mount Zion Cemetery, located in northwest Washington, D.C., and owned by the nearby Mount Zion United Methodist Church. He'd been engaged as the cemetery's caretaker some years ago. The cottage that came with the job was his first real home in a long time. The church paid him in cash with no bothersome paperwork. He didn't make nearly enough to pay income tax. It was the best job he'd ever had. He walked south on 27th Street, caught a metro bus and was soon dropped a block or so from his second home in Lafayette Park. As he passed the small tent that at least technically belonged to him, he pulled the binoculars out of his knapsack and from the shadow of a tree used them to eye the building across the street. He had taken the government-issue binoculars with him after serving his country proudly before completely losing faith in its leaders. His real name he had not used in decades. He had been known for a long time now as Oliver Stone, a name he'd adopted in what could only be termed an act of defiance. He related well to the irreverent film director's legendary work, which challenged the official perception of history, a history that often turned out to be more fiction than fact. This Oliver Stone was also very interested in the real truth. 
Through the binoculars, he continued to study the comings and goings at the mansion that never ceased to fascinate him. Then Stone entered his tent, and using an old flashlight, he carefully noted down his observations in one of the journals he'd brought in his knapsack. He kept some of these at the caretaker's cottage, and many more at a hiding place he maintained elsewhere. He stored nothing at the tent because he knew it was regularly searched. In his wallet he always kept his official permit, allowing him to have his tent here, and the right to protest in front of the building across the street. Returning outside, he watched the guards who holstered semi-automatic pistols and held machine guns and occasionally spoke into walkie-talkies. They all knew him. He was a tall and very lean man. His shirt was too big and his trousers too short, and the shoes, well, the shoes were always problematic. It is new clothes that you need, a voice said in the darkness. He looked up.